everybody. Alex Shaw with your uh, Scott Risk Matters podcast, sitting here with Scott Turner of uh, True Timber. And, um, well, I'm not sitting with him. We're on Zoom. Um, and, and the regular James Jimbo Redman from uh, Scott Risk Performance Group. How are you guys? Doing good. Awesome. Where, uh, Scott, it sounds like you're, you're, uh, you're out and about working, um, calling in from the phone. So what do you uh, find yourself doing today? I actually just snuck down to the little uh, boat club. I was on the road, and I knew I needed to stop for this. So I'm actually sitting in a wonderful setting beside the river. But uh, now uh, is, that, is that by Huguenot by any chance? Yeah, this is the one by Huguenot Bridge, yeah. Oh, I, I need to figure a way to get into that. That's the little John boat. Uh, I got a little 14-foot John boat with a 1975 yeah. six-horsepower Evinrude that needs to – uh, a home because my wife doesn't really enjoy seeing it in my backyard all the time. So maybe we'll have yeah, to and it's a great place for zoom meetings too. Yeah. Well, that's what I, I, I was thinking. I actually, um, that's exactly what I was thinking several, <laughs> several months back, but, um, Scott, while we, while we kind of lead into this, why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean, you've got a kind of interesting history, Scott Turner, not, you know, before we get into true timber and, and maybe a little bit of a conversation around your, your, participation in, in Riverside. Tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, and, and maybe a bit about your education and um, in school and outside of school. Um, yeah, um, so right after uh, high school, I jumped into University of Richmond and wasn't, wasn't um, uh, mature enough for that. So I, I joined the Navy and did five years in the Navy, which, you know, was a very interesting experience based on their their risk management. I mean, uh, there's a lot of stories I could tell about the way risks were managed on a on a Navy ship. But uh, got out of there, did a six year um, master's degree in physics, uh, paying for that by um, climbing trees, you know, in my spare time. So learned a love of arboriculture and a love of tree climbing while finishing that. Um, master's degree and then just moved right into starting um true timber arborist after working for a more of an old old uh school tree company here in town wow that's a that is an interesting background <laughs> yeah <laughs> how many how many uh physics majors are in the tree business not many and i can tell you my advisor never believed me that i wasn't gonna he was pretty upset that I did not go make his name big out in the physics world by, you know, him placing me somewhere. I was telling him the whole time, you know, I'm not going to do anything with this. And he, he found it hard to believe, but I, you know, sure enough, went right into starting true timber, getting right out of it. I don't think there are many, um, and the knowledge, I find the knowledge a useful base. Um, but you know, experience has always been far more significant than, than the theoretical data. <laughs> Yeah. What, so what drove you to, to, to pursue education in physics then? What, that, what, what part of that just naturally curious or? Um... Naturally curious and to, to prove to my mom that if I wanted to, I could. So she knew it wasn't a fallback plan to do tree work. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's hope for my 17 year old that, that yeah. he'll, he'll, he'll be equally as stubborn. <laughs> so when, and when did you start True Timber? 1998. Okay, and that was after how many years of climbing yourself? Um, I would think uh, not year, day in, day out climbing, but a good decade of using it as a filler for quick, quick income. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a, there's a mechanic in town who went to tech, Fritz Car Care in Richmond, that I, 
that I go to, and he was a engineering student at Virginia Tech, and um, and he started working on cars to, as he says, to um, make a little beer money, and then ended up graduating, not not enjoying doing the engineering piece, and then just going into running his own shop. And he's he's uh, every bit an engineer. I I made a comment the other uh, month that man, you you guys really do a great job. You know, have you thought about and bring more people on? And he's like, well. I tried that once. <laughs> so, yeah. And that was that. So what, what was it like kind of building true timber from perhaps a, a one person show to adding team members and having to, to kind of roll responsibility onto others? I'd imagine that's a, a kind of difficult thing to let go to a degree. It very much was. Uh, the, I'll tell you the, the best birthday card I ever got from an aunt was a quote from Anton the clown. And it said, any idiot can learn to juggle chainsaws. It's the day-to-day balloon animal making that wears you out. And uh, <laughs> the, yeah, managing people became the much greater challenge early on. You know, when we were a little five to 10 person um, club, kind of workers club, um, we, it, it felt very much easier to keep uh, aligned and on the, on the same page. And we weren't even following wonderful safety uh you know wearing the wonderful safety belts that we wear as a company now i try to coach that to my staff i you know i find the the ppe usage and all that far less significant than our mental choices um but even before we were wearing safety belts or um we were deciding things well as a small group and and surviving a dangerous workplace with our with our minds (laughs) if not with our um protections so expanding out taking some old-fashioned guys that were in the company then and convincing them that um we needed to to do better to to protect ourselves from unforeseen things and everything it was a a big challenge you know even going from cutting cutting things with chainsaws even just putting chaps on at one point in the early stage of the company was a big challenge. Now we've pushed it to even more extreme things in our industry, like no one hand chainsaw use. I'm fairly certain you could find every company in tree care saying they have that policy, but that they don't have that policy. But, you know, we're, we're fighting hard to, to work with our guys on work positioning so that they can live up to that, that, that safety measure of never cutting uh, with a chainsaw with one hand, but it's always a challenge to get that buy-in. Um, I think our culture has gotten to where it's gotten easier, but the early days were rough. What, what, uh, there's a kind of a, a psychological phenomenon known as the Peltzman effect that, that essentially is your, the degree of, of perceived risk in any given activity determines how much risk you take in it. And so yeah. interesting comment about, you know, we didn't used to use PPE, but, but maybe we're a bit in many cases, mentally sharper because the risks seem more present. You know, if you've got a rope, you may take uh, more risk because you feel like you've got something to fall back on. If you don't have harnesses and rope setups, um, my sense is you're going to be pretty, pretty careful. Not to say that's the right path to go down, but just kind of an right. interesting thing to, to, to consider. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, the, I think I, it might've been a book called deep survival, but it, covers that angle like they say that the mountain climbing incidents back when if you were walking across an ice ice face your only 
protection was if the guy in front of you on the rope in front of you starts going down the mountain, you drop to your knees and throw your ice pick in the ice and hope to hold him. Like back then there were fewer accidents than now that they have all the fancy gear and, and um, they're trying to engineer safety rather than think safety. Um, I'm sure both, you know, the two can be used in a great partnership, but I do worry that um, a young person coming into the industry would think that their safety has been engineered, you know, that it's never been engineered, that it's always going to be. The PPE between your ears is your most important PPE. Well, one of, one of the things we like to talk about is, is um, that, that, you know, a lot, a lot of safety is perceived in a, in a straight black line. And the, the reality of how work gets done is a, is a, is a curvy blue line. And um, if we're not thinking about that and we're just sort of sticking to uh, the rules as they're written, um, it, it doesn't account for uh, the realities of, of work. And, and yeah. so I, I think the comment about thinking safety is, is, is an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, and we've noticed, you know, with our ANSI guidelines and OSHA, I mean, it seems like OSHA still allows for explanations of um, situations where you might have had to go outside their box. It's not saying that you can never think a different thought than this OSHA guideline. It's saying have it be well defensible, you know, like, you know, be, a, be prepared to defend going outside of any boxes um and of course the tree the tree world we're working with these three-dimensional objects in this very non-repetitive way you know i'm not laying pipe i'm not doing something that's easy to to create a sop for that covers every situation and so um you know we're just real careful to know that there's certain fail safes we don't cross but that man if you're ever gonna try to think outside of an ocean or OSHA or ANSI box, then, then it be, better be well defensible and agreed upon by the, the, the team and sometimes the supervisor above them. Yeah. So, I, so there's a bunch of stuff in there that really yeah. attention. Um, so I, I always, in these podcasts, I'm a big fight fan. So I have always have to find one in. That's why he's got a black eye if you're, if you're yeah, not I, I watching was, video. I was going to ask, but I didn't want him to have to talk about getting beat up at home or something. Yeah, well, it, interesting um, related to your industry incident that we, uh, we can avoid uh, going too deep into right now. But, but from, a, uh, from a fighting perspective, it's interesting because there are some fundamentals, keeping your hands up, chin right. down, you know, being aware of the outside foot, where you are in relation to the opponent. And yet when I watch fights of professional fighters time and time again, they break the fundamentals and, and to their game in many cases. I mean, it's kind of like, um, so I took, I took a condensed physics course two semesters in the summer um, in undergrad. And I remember at the end, um, and this was a basic physics course, and at the end, the professor said something along the lines, this is a while back, so I don't remember verbatim, but now everything I just taught you um, all the rules apply only in that isolated to what I taught you. But when we go to quantum physics, you can throw all that out the window. <laughs> yeah. And so the tie in there is that um, what we see companies do sometimes is have non-negotiables where they say, look, we've got a set of standards and rules and procedures, and yet we know that there are going to be 
um, cases that come up that we can't operate within all those standards, rules, and procedures. And so, as Jimbo often talks about, the idea of not being able to handle, you know, the sum of all human behavior, then what you hope is you equip them with kind of a value set and maybe some fundamentals to, to, to coach them through how to, how to navigate the complexity of any given scenario. So, I mean, I guess that's long-winded, but, but I guess the, the takeaway thoughts there to, to pose to you are maybe what are some of the non-negotiables that, that True Timber has as it pertains to climbing, setups, tree removals, when to use a bucket, when not to, um, and then how do you create, we see this through decentralized command sometimes, the second part, but how do, you, how do you create an environment where your people feel competent to, so that they're not like the new arborist who comes in and says, hey, you know, all this PP is protecting us, I can basically make whatever decision I want. So kind of, a, I know that's loaded and, and a lot in two questions, but um, what kind of non-negotiables and then yeah, so it, it was interesting. So the, the document that we tend to respect most as arborists is called the Z133. We respect it because it's, it's written by arborists. You know, we know that that's um, guys who, that's what their career was. They know where, what reality is for the working arborist, whereas maybe somebody writing that OSHA standard didn't understand the reality we face the same way um but you know it used to be full of shoulds and shalls you know that document was a should shall document which mm. clearly is not legally enforceable <laughs> if you say you should do something you know and 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 so certain things um i think we're like that to cover that angle that it's almost impossible to write a set of safety codes for dismantling three dimension three-dimensional objects from the sky where every three-dimensional object is different um, constructed differently also has different um, structural integrity based on if it's dead or alive all those angles that you have to cover for arbicultural work um, so you know we used to try our own with some sh you know shoulds um, we used to even have reasons why we could perceive that reaching away from your body and cutting with um, one arm with a chainsaw when the follow-through was clearly away from the body the you know like if you were in a certain storm damage situation where your balance was significant enough that you would want to have your left hand on something for balance while reaching away with your right hand away from your body and we would try to define all those you know w when might you consider breaking the two-hand rule on a chainsaw and finally you know after fighting through them we i think for the most part um figured out that you know we were stifling our own creativity that there probably was always a way to get everything you wanted and follow the um the shall have two hands on a chainsaw sometimes the the reality that's tough for us is what it means to the client alex um if i have a solution that maybe involves um some outside the box decision making for you and your backyard because of this terribly dangerous tree you have in your backyard i'm thinking outside the box come up the only other solution for you might be okay no we cannot do this without a crane in your backyard but to get that crane in the backyard that means we have to regrade the left side of your property we have to bring in crusher run we have you know so it's really challenging for me mainly from the client support side that some of these things we have to do for 
uh, as safe an operation as we can do would involve financial disaster to you. And then it also means that most likely the next tree guy is just going to come and do what I would have done anyway. You know, <laughs> you as a consumer are going to say, Scott, that sounds beautiful and really safe, but I can spend $6,000 less and have this um, Bill and Ted's Tree Adventures come back there and take that tree down, you know, and, and they'll be happy to do it. Yeah. But, but you know, Alex, he, he... – He's, he's going to go, I'm not going to do either. I'll just cut it down myself. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, um, it, it's interesting. Jimbo made, made that comment because I, I, you know, one of my good friends, Scott, we've talked about this has been in, in the industry for gosh, maybe over 10 years now, maybe 12 years. Um, he did perfectly fine at UVA made fine grades, but decided that, that the arbitrary life was the way for him. So he, he dropped out to be a tree climber and it can get you, man. Time and time again, he's, they've tried to promote him and time and time again, he said, no, thanks. I, I want to climb trees. And so he helped me uh, prune a, a few trees and do a few takedowns in my backyard. And, and the one handed thing is interesting because a, the, physical demand you know he's got a lot of gear and ascenders and so we geared up fully and and I won't say that my my buddy's cavalier by any means but um, he usually outside of Arbor Street doesn't um, pay too much attention to risk he's not wor worried about his safety or well-being at all and that's an understatement when yeah. it comes to climbing he's so dialed in and and judgmental if you know if you're not wearing chaps or climbing pants if you're not wearing yeah. it if you don't have the gear and we got up to one of the crotches in the tree and, and he asked me, you know, he's kind of instructed me on how to make cuts. And, um, and so my first, my first observation was, man, this is really hard. My sense is there's a lot of folks out there who have romanticized tree climbing, but, but there's probably a lot of attrition. That's maybe a whole nother conversation, but two, two things on this. One is that the view was incredible being a little over 50 feet up and see yeah. the neighborhood from a vantage I'd never seen was out. I mean, just beautiful. And then, um, and then two was, he told me to make a cut and I want to make it. And he told me to put two hands on. And I said, I don't feel comfortable. I don't know if I can from this angle. I don't think it's possible. Yeah. So we switched positions and he he's really patient. He, sh he showed me exactly where to put my feet, exactly where to place my body and position it. And, and by doing that, it made the cut really simple with two hands. And so there's an element of experience that yeah. it comes into that, that I was really um, surprised by. And, and just the coaching and education, like, you know, if you're going to take more than two steps, I think he said, you know, put the chain brake on, you know, if you're, if you're, yeah. if you're um, what do they call it? Bucking logs. Um, and so there, there's just so much granular detail and amazing how risky your business is and yet how well you guys perform in it. Um, what, what is the type of training you guys do for your employees? I mean, experience is a heck of a trainer. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think my safety manager, my safety manager's kind of young and my operations manager, you know, both of them in their thirties and um, phenomenal people, industry respected people. But um, I think we are, I think I've convinced them now or we're learning right now that it's that the classroom has its limits for this type of work, right? Like, there's only so many things you can read and, and hear talk to you from a, from a chalkboard that are going to get it done, but that the experience matters. Um, here lately, they've been out in the field a ton, you know, just getting that OJT um, experience yeah. that's, that's so much more meaningful than any classroom. Um, 
we are proud of True Timber Academy is, is an actual thing. It's a three-year school, basically, for uh, aspiring arborists. We don't have any ground workers at True Timber. There's nobody, you can't say, oh, I just want to drag branches, or I just want to, I just want to pick up stuff. Um, you have to be an aspiring climber to be in our company um, or to be in the production line for tree care. And you be, have to be, be good-natured at that, huh? What's that? And be good-natured at that. And be good-natured, yeah. So that, <laughs> I, um, love seeing your, I love seeing your trucks around uh, yeah. downtown. What does it say, um, hiring good-natured? Always hiring. It's funny. It says always hiring good-natured tree climbers. So we were sitting at our shop one day, and a guy came down the alley and stumbled in, you know, kind of half drunk, I think, and said, yeah, truck said you're always hiring and we were like are you good natured and he just kind of walked away <laughs> he was denatured <laughs> yeah um yeah so we're proud of that school it's pretty intense and um i'll tell you one of the reasons we're so proud of it is uh so i have a daughter that i was just taking around to college visits recently she'll be heading off in the fall and she's going into engineering, and they were proud to tell me that when she's done with her four years, that they can get her a job for like fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. I was like, oh my gosh! But y'all forgetting what I paid for that? Is that really that great? And the, but that's something that um, the collegiate world is proud of. And in our trade school, man, I'm going to pay you to be at school. <laughs> you're going to work, and then by th three years in, you're going to be a certified arborist with all these other credentials, and probably rate a similar pay scale so i think it's it's really what the world needs all of us in these industries need to start um if if the trade schools aren't available man just do it in your own company but um yeah i'd love i'll share it with you i mean it's a pretty intense curriculum that involves a good 10 certifications along the way starting with cdl um goes to our own ground worker specialist certification but early on you get the sense does a person have the um the head and the body to stay in our program because mm. because it does we're going to ask for both out of all of our participants it's not going to be i used to do the full body guys you know they, they got the body for it and the beastliness but not quite the cerebralness for it and then um of course if you're all cerebral then then you're just a salesperson so <laughs> um so we um we uh definitely start early start with a commitment you know some of this is uh we you know we buy all the training materials and pay for all the certification tests but it de definitely make them show a commitment to the full mind body uh, experience that their arboricultural career is going to be you know, you know what i he heard in that is um and, and something that i think you know every organization can 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 learn from and that's something that we preach to them all the time, but I'm not exactly sure that they leverage to the extent they should. And that's that, you know, the expertise for getting the job done safely really lives within your organization and with your team. And, yeah. you know, to the extent that you guys are collaborating and sharing and learning together, um, there, there's probably not any kind of outside agency or regulatory body that that's going to, gonna give you a way that's better than that yeah yeah you're right I, I do think i mean i've had a long life tradition of appreciating what the government can do for me and and definitely benefiting where i need to but never depending on that um ultimately right like there were we have the ability in ourselves and in our organization to create the bubble of um 
you know, the bubble we need for safety. Um, interesting, while you were saying that, it reminded me, one cultural point that we work really hard on is to not be so um, chain of commandy or so, um, you know, here's your boss, here's your supervisor, only speak when spoken to type attitude. For safety, we work really hard on um, everybody feeling good about speaking up whenever they see anything. I know how many times in my climbing career, some young guy just randomly pointed something out to me while I was up in the tree that I might've missed if he hadn't. But if he felt like I was some big jerk that was gonna say, shut up, Jimmy, I know what I'm doing. Um, then I'm missing that opportunity to have all the eyeballs out there, all scanning, scanning the event horizon for something bad that might be about to happen. Um, you know, we, uh, the, the accidents that bug me the most, and I always ask about it. Uh, let's say tree fell into air conditioning unit, or no, I, I remember one a couple years ago. Skinny tree, easy to fell, ends up hitting a pool pump. And, um, and the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, one guy was on the chainsaw. What were the other two guys looking at? Like out of three people standing there, did nobody say, wait, 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 uh, this might not go right. We really are eager in our culture for everybody to feel very comfortable saying at any moment of any job, wait, did you notice or I, something doesn't look right to me. Um, everybody's also very aware they have a, the opportunity to throw the full X. Like I feel, I don't feel comfortable with what we're about to do at all. Yeah, yeah well, one, one, of the, one of the things that, that you mentioned earlier and is, is a little bit tied to that, one, one of the emerging thoughts in, in the risk management world is, is really that, um, you know, uh, we can't prevent failure and completely and so we need to design systems that allow us to fail safely and, and it seems to me that uh, you mentioned that term earlier and just given the nature and uncertainty and unpredictability of a lot of um, what you're doing is is a lot of what you have to be thinking about is how you fail safely is that is that yeah accurate? I think that is accurate you know we we coach the the uh, a five-step decision-making process it's not unique to us but um you you start with the thing you're trying to accomplish go to information and options like what does your training tell you what what options do you perceive for this action you're about to take but uh number number three is the big one right like other potential outcomes um we want a three-person team we want every one of those three people thinking of other potential outcomes like here's the plan but if this goes wrong this could happen if this could you know and and then never hitting step four which is take action before you can guarantee that every person is going to be safe we take lots of actions in tree care where we say you know our safest option here involves risk to that fence over there or risk to a plant but <laughs> we do insist that if you're going to step four of this process which is take your action go for it that and none of your uh, other potential outcomes from step three was oh yeah i end up falling from the tree or i end up with a chainsaw in my leg you know you have to scan that event horizon well enough to to um see those potentialities and take a and and adjust your plan so that that's not one of the potentialities and of course step five in case nobody else does these basic decisions. Step five is calibrate, right? So we prize our near misses. We treat them like gold. Um, you know, you made this plan, 
it didn't go totally off the rails, but it also didn't go exactly how you wanted you calibrate. And, and for me, as a, I still do a, a very small amount of work, but my um, stockpile of calibrations from near misses and then um, things that didn't go exactly right, but were, were moments to learn from, didn't cause big problems. It scares me if a guy thinks, oh, that was lucky, landed right. It didn't land where I wanted to, but it, it landed. Oh, that's lucky. All right, let's go fell another one without doing that calibration moment. No, why didn't it land where it fell? You, you've got a little piece of gold here. You, you did something wrong and it didn't hurt anything. You know, use that gold and make it uh, valuable for you next time. That, that's such a good, good framework. And, and so many can, could benefit by, um, you know, really leveraging that in, in a meaningful way. And that's, you know, sometimes we, we, we say that's uh, paying attention to the small signal events, but maybe in your, your case, they're right. such small signals, maybe they're booming events. But really, really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think such that, you know, each each moment of commentary you've had has been rich with a lot of content to, to go to really dive deeper on. And, and I'm struck by the necessity of executing in your industry to the degree that you guys do to, to using those uh, close calls as gems. And, and part of that is just driven due to the reality of the risk. I think in, in some cases we'll engage with an industry where maybe the risk or the perceived risk isn't as front and center in your industry. It is. I mean, the fatality rate, I know you used to get lumped in with logging, which has like a fatality <laughs> rate of like 130, you know, yeah. per hundred thousand workers. And, but even at that for, I, I think the stat since 92 has basically been 3.4, 3.5, you know, fatalities per hundred thousand workers for you guys, it's closer to 40, which is significant. Right. Um, and so to me, it's just, it's a, a real a real story of man when the perceived risk and the true risk are relatively closely aligned that's when you see high performance and, and we kind of see that too in that most of the accidents we review are are seemingly actually in many cases not that interesting they they happen when um outside of the high risk interactions that people have M most people tend to dial in when they're when they're participating I agree. yeah you that's said that earlier and it reminded me that um, uh, I convincing my own wife of this career, I had to convince her that, you know what, the clarity I experience in the higher risk is better. Like you're, you're more likely to lose me walking down the street um, than you're to lose me up in that tree. Cause huh. you know, because the dialed in this, I loved it. I love the clarity of focusing on what's really keeping you alive and keeping you because you know, you and me will go out to the, well, we won't anytime soon because of COVID, but I, I, out in society, I, I probably am more oblivious to 20 risks around me every moment than I am up in a tree hanging from a rope. And uh, I, I found that a very um, peaceful and sort of satisfying thing compared to the dangers of society. <laughs> Scott, are you going to take that bird, bird's nest down before you cut that tree? <laughs> oh, can we take, um, you mean the one where I'm at right now? Yeah. Oh, we're not taking that one down. He is noisy. He's got something to say. I think he's got some safety-related things he wants to mention. Yeah, well, I just thought that people would appreciate this podcast more if they knew that you were 60 feet up in a tree. Oh, yeah. yeah we, we should. 
All right, let's tell them that. Can you edit out the parts where I wasn't up in the <laughs> Um, hey, yeah, can I mention one more thing, Alex? And I, because yeah. I want you, since I'm so excited to have you part of our team for keeping our employees safe, um, I, I'm grappling with the idea that safety to them would become a checklist the more and more we engineer it, right? Um, so I just want you to be on my team. Like, how do we, uh, one of our rules, yeah, there's just so many little details, uh, minutiae in the safety protocol. I don't want them to get distracted by that. Like you said, like if that's like putting on a big hockey uniform to go out into your world so that nothing can hurt you, yes, you can still be hurt. And so I just I didn't want to throw that out there. That's my current fear, watching a younger group of people move into a hazardous workplace, is that they're placing more faith in their checklist than their than their noggin. Yeah, so I think a really critical ingredient. So I'm a big history fan and I'm a big fan of context. And I think void of context in the backstory as to why something was added to the checklist um, is, is problematic because we create these systems and these processes, but in the absence, you know, they were created, let's say you had a near miss or an incident. So your team institutionally, you have the knowledge to say, man, that's really valuable for people to understand and execute in a different way. And so you put that into place as part of your cultural practice and standard. And then you hire somebody new five years later and the memory of that close call or near miss is lost. So the emotion, um, which typically drives our right. attention to um, our attention to risk and to, and to operations and how to navigate changes therein, um, it, it gets watered down. And so I, I, I'm just a big fan of story and yeah. of creating a narrative around why certain rules are in place. I think the reality is that no matter what you do, um, distance, um, what's a good way to put this? The, the time and separation between an event kind of uh, dulls the emotion. Yeah. yeah. So um, my sense is that any way you can keep those stories alive, whether it's leveraging. So for big companies, what we advise is, um, look, if you've got, 50 locations or 48 different locations, we need to be regularly tapping into the intellectual capital and the experience of each of those locations because they're going to have an event. You, you do the same thing across all locations. They're going to have an event that you could have just as well. But why don't we learn from their event to improve the risk profile of our entire organization? Right. And so I think that's a really valuable thing to do. And for an organization with fewer locations or fewer employees, what I would say is do your best to mine content and information from other organizations. Yeah. And our national organization does a great job. You know, they, they, they are, we try to use these near misses from the whole tree care industry um, and leverage them the most we can. Of course, it's more leverageable when it's nearby or close, but, uh, you know, it does. I, I love what you said. We just got to keep our stories fresh. Yeah. So as we, as we round this out, maybe a little humor, um, as I was getting my education on some of the, the verbiage and language for when a climber's in the tree and we had these cool Bluetooth headset head uh, helmets. They were great. Yeah, those are cool. yeah. The only problem was I didn't know how to turn. I didn't know you could turn down the volume. So when chainsaw action was going on, it, it was uh, probably more harmful to my ears than helpful uh, <laughs> those microphones are, are sensitive but um, one of the comments was you know if, if there's a limb falling don't look up 
just walk away as quickly as you can and you'll hear them just say headache. So, yeah. so what, what are some other arborist, you know, jargon that maybe are PG to PG 13 that we can. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, headache is a good one in the first rule. That's day one of training, just like out rock climbing, right? You cover your head and move away. <laughs> yeah. If you hear somebody say headache, um, but now I can't think of anyone. It, you know, we do have a set of hand signals too, because it's a noisy environment. But um, I, you know, I bet there's tons out there right now. I'm just too much of the old. I'm not in the loop anymore, man. I got to go find out what their, what their uh, cool new jargon is for all the other stuff. <laughs> well, um, man, Scott, it's been uh, been great catching up with you, and and thanks for your perspective. It's it's interesting to have a conversation with. Um, again, folks who are kind of at the razor's edge of risk because it, it's apparent that, that you've engaged with it and thought about it. And, um, and so what we say is, you know, on, on the risk journey, you never quite arrive. You're, you're always just on the next evolution. And so, uh, yeah. We, we, don't, we, don't deal with many, we don't deal with many organizations where everyone's at the sharp end of the spear. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that just makes for a really interesting conversation, um, you know. And so um, when you've got organizations where people are looking at the risk through all sorts of different lenses really creates complexity uh, and, and challenges that, that, you know, in some ways you don't have, um, which, which is kind of cool. Well, thank you all for having me. And I'm really excited to have guys like you guys uh, on my team man it's it's fun and I, I look forward to more many more discussions yeah we do too and, and thanks a lot Scott hope you have a great rest of the week and until then uh, thanks to the folks for listening in we'll catch you next time mm -hmm.